We're going to be in Exodus chapter 24. Like I said, last week we started this new series. This is our last time in Exodus. But this new series is called The Church in the World. What has God placed us here to do? What are these main things that God expects us here individually as a local church um, to become part of our DNA about, about how, we, how we go about our business? So what do the scriptures tell us to do? And so Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but only that you keep them from evil. And as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's just saying that, that Jesus clearly expects us to be out in the world where he placed us, that the church is, has a mission. We've been sent. And last week we looked at this big idea that what God has done by gathering us together is to create a countercultural of grace, right? a, a city whose foundations are, are Christ and the gospel. And, and if that is our foundation here, it's going to change the way we relate to one another, relate to God, and relate to the world. And this morning, this really is part two of, of what is God's city like, what is this heavenly kingdom like, as we look at, at God's hospitality, that in God's city, we get to eat and drink with him. And so let's read it, and we'll see what God has to teach us this morning. It's Exodus 24, we're going to read the first 11 verses. This is God's word. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for giving us a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like, that we're going to eat, and eat with you and see your face. And so I pray this morning that we would see the joy of the great feast to come and that we would get a taste of it this morning, even as you send us in the world as a people who eat and drink with sinners. So may these things become a part of who we are in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, we've
just come through the holidays, which is essentially what a, a six or seven week period of where all we do is eat and drink, <laughs> mostly sugar. <laughs> it's a great, great time of year. It's probably why we have New Year's resolutions to undo all the damage that's just been done. But you know, this really is the one time of year where you start to see the significance and the power of hospitality and food. It's the one time of year where everybody across the country is deliberate about getting with people that they would not normally hang out with. Um, families gather together. And people are just deliberate and joyful because part of it's tradition and part of it's just it's what we do. And so as we talk about food, it's one of those things that seems really ordinary and mundane. But as you read here, it's actually something incredibly significant. Because few, few things are more expressive of friendship and companionship than sharing a meal together. That someone you share food with is likely to be your friend or is at least on the journey of becoming a friend. See that? That food and friendship go together. I, mean, I, I can think of Beth, Bethany and I's story in Mississippi. That's how we built relationships. We invited people into our home and, and the people we still talk to were people we had repeated meals with. Food and friendship go together. Or you can think of, of missionaries. I mean, I remember having conversations with missionaries overseas in Africa of the way that food and hospitality and friendship go together. And one lady told me she was invited over, I think it was in Kenya, for a meal, and they were having soup, and the way you honor your guests is to give them the best portion. I mean, if you have a sensitive stomach, just stop listening. <laughs> and so she took her big spoonful and put it in her mouth. And started swirling it around, saying, oh, no, Lord, what is this? <laughs> and it, was, it was the cow's eyeball. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> but in that culture, to refuse the food was to refuse the friendship, and it would be offensive. Food matters. Even in, in painful ways, in the history of our country, you think about all the signs in the South 50 years ago that said certain people were not welcome. You can't eat here because of what you look like. Food and, and hospitality and friendship matters. Food binds us together as a family. I mean, this is how families grow together or grow apart. It's around the dinner table. It has the power to, to inflict conflict. Refuse a meal. In some parts of the world, civil wars can start. I say all that just, just to get us to start thinking about food, because as you come to our passage, you get this amazing picture of God sitting down at a meal with Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of these elders. It says they beheld God, and they ate and drank. And in the ancient Near East, to bring someone into your home, to give them hospitality, to share a meal with them was an ultimate act of, of intimacy and fe fellowship and friendship. And so when you, you read what we just read, God is saying, I wanted these men to come into my house and to eat with me as a sign of the blessing of the covenant that you're in. I mean, there's a very big difference between saying, I want to be your friend and I want you to come into my house so we can build a friendship. See, there's an amping up of the intimacy. And so as we look at this text, you're going to see 
that God told Israel, if you obey, if you do all these things, if you keep my law, my words, you're going to receive the honor and privilege of becoming my friend, of eating and drinking with me, that heaven's going to eat at your dinner table. You're going to be invited as earth to heaven's dinner table. It's amazing. If you combine it then with, with last week's message about this city of God that's founded on grace, that motivates our obedience, this city is supposed to be full of, and will be full of feasting, eating and drinking. Right, so if you want to know what heaven's going to be like, that's, that's it right there. We're going to eat and drink, and we're going to see God and be in complete awe that we are there, and he did not lift his hand up against us, but instead welcomed us. So this morning, we want to ask two questions. One, how do you get a seat at God's table? How, how do you get a place at this feast? That's going to be very clear in our text. And second, then, how does this feast and what the Bible says about eating and drinking affect the way we go about life and ministry here at Hope? And that we'll find that especially by looking at Jesus in the text we read earlier. So let's read this. We've got to understand what's going on. How do you get a seat at God's table? How are you invited in to this great feast, this great party? In the context, it has to help. I mean, this, is, this section that we've been looking at, 19 to 24, this is what theologians call the Mosaic Covenant. This is God making official the relationship he already began when he redeemed them from Egypt. And so... I just want you to see that Exodus 24 that we just read isn't it its own thing. It's connected to what immediately came before. This is the conclusion. It's the end of the conversation that God started in 19. And so it's all about how do you connect, how are we going to live life together is what God's saying. And here's the covenant, here's the terms. This is what it's going to look like. We are bound together now in blood. This, this was all part of the ancient covenant-making process. And I know that some of this is going to be really foreign because, well, we're not from there in that time. It's an ancient world. And so we are going to talk a lot about blood. But that's because it's here in the text. We'll, we'll make sense of it, so just, just follow along with me. How, how do you make an agreement that's binding a contract without pen and paper like we had? And in the ancient world, what they would do is they would cut a covenant. They would, they would recite the words. They were an oral culture, a dramatic culture. They would recite it. They would say it out loud. They would learn through listening. But then they would act it out, and that's what we just read. That's what all the blood is about. So let's look at the, the reciting. You've got two parties. In every covenant, it's almost always the, the greater, the king, making a covenant with the lesser, his people. And so you've got Yahweh and the people of Israel. This is the one who redeemed them from slavery. And then as you follow through 19 to 24, God gives the history. And what's, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, right? That the, what's amazing is archaeologists have found ancient covenants in that time that follow the exact same pattern here that you read in Exodus. That God was coming down to communicate to his people in a way they could understand. And so God gives them... You know, these are the people in this contract, me and you. The history, I brought you out of Egypt. And then you get the terms, that's what all the commandments are about. Right? Remember, it's not 
do these and then you will be in a relationship with me. It's now that you are in a relationship. This is how you live life with me. And you've, 19 to 24, I counted at least three times. God spoke it, and then Moses read it twice. They went through the terms of the covenant. They were just reciting it. That's how they learned. You got all the different applications of the Ten Commandments then in 20 through 23. And then within the covenant were these promises. Blessings if you obey and curses if you disobey. If you keep these commandments, the Lord said, I will drive out your enemies before you. I'll give you the land of Canaan. I will be the enemy of your enemies. And by implication, if you don't obey, if you do worship other gods, I'm going to be your enemy. So there was there is a threat in there. And then to, to give them a picture to remember all this, these happenings, then they act out the covenant. Right? And that's what our text is about. That's what these offerings are all about. Because it says, after the words of the Lord were written down, they, Moses built an altar, and then they kill a lot of oxen for burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then Moses does something that... Um, to say it's unusual. <laughs> Be grateful that I'm not doing this as an object lesson. Right? He, just, he just starts sprinkling blood on people. It, it's strange. And I, I did some math. You think about there, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of people here gathered around the mountain. And one oxen that weighs about 1,000 pounds, they say, has about 25 liters of blood. And this was a messy process. Right, so just picture half of that blood for every oxen killed, you've got six and a half, two liters, two liter bottles of blood. That went then went out and was just sprinkled on everybody there. So everybody walked home with visible blood stains on their skin, on their clothes, to remember God's grace to them, but also the call on them to be faithful to him. And because they're in the desert, they don't shower every day. This blood stayed there for a while. On their skin for days, I'm sure. But also, it would be on their clothes. And so they had this visible picture of what God was calling them to do. And to remember the gracious time in which he called them to it. It's a call to remember a sign of his grace and the obligation to obey him. Now, what is all that about? What does it mean? And well, they were cutting a covenant, and the way they would make a deal back then was to take an animal and cut it in half. You see this in Genesis 15. And the two people making an agreement would walk through the pieces and say, if I do not do what I promised, may I look like that animal. May my blood be shed. That's what's happening here, as the blood gets sprinkled on them. When, they, when the people say, thinking of the Ten Commandments. Lord, everything you have told us to do, we will do. And they make this covenant with God. They were saying, if we disobey, you, have, you are just in shedding our blood. That is, it is right. This is the promise that we will give to you. And on the other hand, right, if God is not faithful to his covenant, he's saying, you can do the same to me. If you break any of God's commandments, may our blood be sprinkled on the ground. May we die. And so this grand question we started with, how do you get a seat at God's table? 
The first answer is, is through the blood of the covenant. Through the blood of someone else, of something else. We've got to make sense of a couple more things, and then we'll, we'll apply this. We've got to get a little more bloody. If you look at verse 5, there's two kinds of offerings, a burnt offering and a peace offering, and I know it's strange because there's no explanation as to what they are. Um, you, you get that later in Scripture and Leviticus. But a burnt offering was this picture, it was a, a drama to teach, and, and, a, and a real interaction saying that you take the oxen, put it on the altar, and the whole thing was to be burned up to be a fragrant aroma in, in God's nose. And what it was teaching was that the entire person needed to be forgiven. You needed a full forgiveness. Judgment had to fall on somebody for your sin, and it's going to fall on this oxen. Completely burned up. So it's two things. It needed our full forgiveness. That was the picture. It needed also communicated that we needed God's righteous anger to be fully satisfied. That was the burnt offering. That's what people were seeing as these oxen died. And then second, it says that there were peace offerings. And these peace offerings were a little bit different. I mean, an ox dies, it says they, they probably slit the throat, and they collected the blood in basins. But right, the whole thing wasn't burned up. Half the blood would be thrown on the altar to communicate the need for forgiveness and the need for God's righteous anger to be satisfied. And the other half was sprinkled on the people after they resolved to be obedient. And then what they would do with the meat is they would then eat this meal in the presence of God. The blood has made peace with God, so now we can eat together. That's what it was communicating. That's why it's called the peace offering in some translations or the fellowship offering. Now, I know that's probably not as moving to you as it might have been to them, because it is a lot of blood, and unless you're a farmer, right, you've probably never slaughtered an animal, or unless you're a hunter. But I want you to see how gracious this is, what it's communicating. God, God had to know, and he knew, that these people were committing to do something that was absolutely beyond their ability to do. Just look at the history. They haven't done anything right, really, since getting out of Egypt. And so when they say, yeah, God, we'll, we'll do everything you say, it's like, oh, come on. I mean, that's, it's like, it's like my, my son and me saying, I'll never whine again. I know that's not true. It's the worst resolution ever to say, God, I'm going to get it right all the time. So let that shape your New Year's resolution. What it's communicating is that the same blood that forgives you is also going to sustain you in your obedience. The same, God, the same blood that's crying out for your forgiveness is right there to sustain you when you stumble and fall. You're marked with the blood of the covenant. It's calling you to obey. And when you fail to come back to God's forgiveness, the blood of, of the animal that was spilt in your place, And so that, that's astounding. That the blood that they went home with on their clothes was saying, my God has promised to dwell with me, and the penalty hasn't fallen on me. Succeed or fail. 
And then afterwards, the blessing of the covenant was a barbecue with God. They cooked up the meat and they ate it. And only a handful got to see God face to face. And what, what the text wonders, and I'm sure what you're wondering, is how in the world can the blood of an oxen keep people alive in the presence of a holy God? Justice demands payment. I mean, we know that these men were deeply flawed. I mean, how does an oxen actually cry out for your forgiveness? I mean, it's teaching you that everyone gets a seat at God's table only at the expense of another. But it still it leaves questions. It doesn't really give you an answer right here in Exodus. But I want to show you that this principle absolutely makes sense. That you cannot eat with somebody unless someone else pays the price. That hospitality is expensive. It's costly. And so, think about this. You're preparing a meal for friends. Why don't you invite the people who have offended you in the past? Family who, who owe you debts. I'm just making stuff up here. But I know it's real. Or, or you have a neighbor who ran over your mailbox. <laughs> or your dog in even worse circumstances. You see, to, to have somebody in your presence, at your table, to feed them and to build a relationship with them, it requires emotional energy. It requires forgiveness. You could be even more extreme. I mean, places like Rwanda, where neighbors killed other neighbors' family members. And then when the hall of the things settled, they still had to live next to each other to end the cycle. The point is, is that everyone has a certain set of expectations and standards for who should and should not sit at your dinner table. We all do. To, to determine who we let in, and when those standards are violated, we don't want them in because we don't trust them. We don't want to get hurt again. That's why God communicates to Israel that you're going to eat with me, and that is a privilege of us having a relationship, but it's costly. That's why this ox has to die. Because it, I'm the one paying the price for you to eat with me. That's absolutely the case here. Think of Moses and, and, and the elders. They're not covenant keepers, they're covenant breakers. And they promise to, to at bare minimum, to keep the Ten Commandments. Those are the ones we're familiar with. And one of the things that's been really helpful for me as I try and get my mind wrapped around how to keep the Ten Commandments really how not to keep them, <laughs> of, of what, what their purpose is, is to show us that we're covenant breakers. And what, one of the things that Martin Luther did, the great reformer, was to, to explain the Ten Commandments and to explain to you and I how our heart works and how sin relates to a holy God, was to say this, you've got two sections of the Ten Commandments. The first four deal with your relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me, no graven images, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain and honor the Sabbath. Those are God-directed. And then the, the last six are more moral. Like don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet. Uh, honor your father and mother. But he pointed out that you can actually summarize the entire requirement of the Ten Commandments if you just keep the first one. God summed up everything you can do in ten words. Luther says, you know, you probably could do this in one. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Just keep the first commandment. 
that the sin underneath the sin, underneath adultery, underneath stealing, is first a breaking of the first commandment. That nobody ever sins without breaking the first commandment. That if you could actually keep the first commandment all the time, you and I would be perfect. There would be no death of of any livestock. So let me prove this to you. Why do you lie? I know we're good Christians and we don't lie, but let's let's be honest, we lie. (laughs) I'll let you in on a trade secret for most pastors who end up in this uh, position, we're, we're people pleasers. Right, so, yeah, on one hand, we don't want the consequences. Right, wanna, it hurts, to be honest. We don't want people to, um, you just don't want to get caught. So it's much easier to hide. But really, for, for myself and, and other pastors I've spoken to, the reason we lie is because we want you to, to like us, to think of us as better as we, than we really are. And that underneath that motivation, first, it's a desire to have the love of man more than the love of God, and that the first commandment was broken long before the false witness came out of our mouths. You see that? I know that's humbling. But Jesus applies the same principle. You go to Matthew chapter 6. He says something as mundane as anxiety. We become anxious and don't trust God because we've broken the first commandment. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters because you're going to hate the one or love the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, don't be anxious. Did you hear it? If you treasure anything on earth more than God, you will be anxious. And that treasuring something else on earth more than God is already a breaking of the first commandment. And so even under our stress, we, we can't keep the first commandment. The breaking of any of God's laws is first rejecting the lawgiver, even if it's intentional or not. You see, that's why God would go on to say that this this covenant ceremony that we witnessed with all the blood, it was like a marriage. And so that when you and I and these people, Moses and Aaron, break God's law, they're actually breaking the marriage vows. It's crushing. God's saying, you're crushing me. And yet he still says, I want to eat with you. Because here's God inviting a rebellious, unfaithful people those who cannot keep the first commandment to come in and say, I'm going to bear the cost. I'm going to let this animal point you to something else. You don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to bear the pain so we can eat together because that's what I want. That God, from the foundation of the world, has always wanted to eat with you and I, sinners. And only those sprinkled with the blood of the covenant are allowed in. It's astounding. The blood of the covenant. You know, 2,000 years later, Jesus was eating a meal with sinners, the apostles, at the Last Supper, talking to these men who, who lived and breathed Exodus. I mean, they, this, this language is just in their head. 
say blood of the covenant, they could probably have recited this whole thing we just read. And what Jesus says really powerfully, I long to eat this meal with you. And that actually isn't strong enough. Because we think longing and passion, Jesus uses the same word twice in a row. I mean, really long for it. It doesn't seem to cover it. He says, I have an epithumia and an epithumesa, which is the Greek way of saying, with this all-consuming passion, I have passionately longed (laughs) to eat with you. It's, It's hard to put into English. It's just saying that everything I've looked forward to comes is coming to fulfillment in this meal with you at the Last Supper. I want to eat this before I suffer with you. And so then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus says the blood of the covenant, the blood of those livestock, the blood of the covenant that really forgives sin, that actually gets you in, is my blood. And I I so longed from before the foundation of the world to eat this meal with you that I'm going to shed my blood for you, in your place. That's why the Hebrews... The writer says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, having full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled, that's the language, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. See, people weren't allowed in to the presence of God. Everyone was gathered around the mountain, and only the elders got to see God in Moses' day. Because their hearts weren't sprinkled. They didn't... They weren't worthy. They, weren't, they were sinners. They weren't allowed in. They didn't have the blood that cried out for the full forgiveness. Because the blood of an animal it does nothing. It was a pointer. And so if you put all this together, Jesus says, my passion is to eat and drink with sinners, with people like you. And it's an epic, all-consuming, relentless, heart and flame desire that, that sent me to the cross. So it's the only one who ever saw God who showed us the beauty of the law who ends up getting kicked out of the feast on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like he heard God say, you are no longer welcome here in my home. As he takes the covenant curse that we deserve. And this blood then, that Jesus spilled and was sprinkled on the tree That's the new covenant that gives us a seat at the table that we're going to take here in a few moments. Do you see this? That God, from Eden to Revelation, has always wanted to eat with sinners, and that the covenant that we've been talking about is the way that makes that possible. I know people say Christianity is about salvation, but its goal is that God would dwell with his people and eat and drink with us that we might see him face to face. This was the plan all along. Now, what does this feast have to do with us and the ministry of the church? I want to keep it simple. 
But if God's goal has always been to eat with sinners, it should not be a surprise when Jesus shows up on earth that all he does is eat and drink with sinners. (laughs) And yet it is. For whatever reason, the church and religious people, we always come up with some reason to, to keep people out of the meal. The feasting was the goal of, God, of Christ's ministry. It was the goal of why Jesus came, so that we could eat with him. But it was also the means of mission. It was the way he brought people to God. And so if that's going to get into our DNA, then we have to start and think that if, if Jesus' mode of mission was to go and eat and drink with sinners, that should shape the way we, we eat with people. Right? This is the simplest thing in the world because we eat constantly to stay alive, to turn to someone and say, come eat with me. And it just gives you a perfect opportunity then to talk about life, who they are, why they hurt, um, how the gospel fits in their life and applies. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's an astounding picture that God the Judge... As you see Jesus, he's holding up a glass. He's the one who's invited to all the parties, eating with sinners. And that's why I wanted to read Luke 7, because it says this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This was Christ's mode of mission. And then it immediately takes you into a meal with the Pharisees and a sinner. You remember it? <coughs> They're all reclining at the table, eating and drinking, when in comes this woman of the city, we call her prostitute, uh, an adulteress. I mean, they saw her as a homewrecker. And she immediately goes and, and touches Jesus' feet and lets down her hair. Is just blown away by the grace that she had just heard about. We talk about awkward. You probably could have heard a pin drop in that room. As she was letting her hair down was something you would only do in the presence of your husband. It was an intimate fellowship. And gesture. And plus doing it, touching anyone's feet is an intimate thing. And Jesus just lets her. And Simon cannot handle it. He says, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman this is who's touching you. She has no business here at our meal. That's basically what he's saying. And then Jesus responds with this great story where he says, a certain man had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they couldn't pay, he forgave the debt of both. And then he said, which one do you think will love him more? Simon, the Pharisee, says, well, I suppose the one who had the greater debt forgiven. Then Jesus goes on to praise the sinner and condemn the righteous one, the one trying to be good. He says, Simon, you didn't welcome me at all. You didn't wash my feet. She wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't welcome me with a kiss. That's just a polite way of welcoming somebody you want to be friends with. And yet she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. See, Jesus is praising her for everything Simon didn't do. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Expensive. So you didn't even go to the dollar store to get oil, Simon. She, she spent all this money to show her love for me. It's astounding. God, the judge, wants to eat and drink with sinners. And even here, he shows you. Because of the blood of the covenant, sins are forgiven. 
And he can praise the sinner and tell the righteous until you see that you need this cup and you need my body broken for you. Your table is going to be no fun at all. It's only going to be judgment. So look, eating and drinking is the goal of Jesus' mission, but it's the way that he welcomes sinners. And so that means we should start to look at our dinner table and say, how can we, who can we, should we eat with? Who should we invite over? Who should we minister to? It doesn't matter what skin color they are, how many tattoos they have. I mean, this is, it's appropriate that the, the, the Milnes are here. This is kind of Serge, Serge's mode of doing ministry in the city, of hospitality, of eating together. Now, we tend to think of missions as someplace where we go, and we're called to go out into our communities and build relationships with sinners. Yeah, it's going to be awkward. Sure it is. Because you're starting to get to know people different than you. But that's what God has done for us in Christ. My hope and prayers that our meals together would be a family meal. Right? That's what we do when we fellowship together. But it would be a family meal where everyone is welcome to come in and see what our family is all about. The gospel. To be a reflection of that great feast at the end. All right. So conclusion. We all have the seat at the table because of the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood. I'll end with this story, and it'll lead right into the table. I'll get Jim to come up. You've ever seen Babette's Feast, the old film? It's about an 18th century Christian community in Denmark um, that has become completely joyless and legalistic. You see the members of the church, they go to church together, but they don't really like each other because everyone remembers what everyone has done wrong. (laughs) And Babette is a refugee from Paris who came to live with these two sisters in this town in Denmark. And for 12 years, Babette serves as their housekeeper, learning how to prepare their humble food. And then after 12 years, she finally wins 10,000 francs in the lottery. She had a friend in Paris who kept putting her name in every year, and her number came up. I mean, 10,000 francs, it's a ton of money. And so she goes to these two sisters and says, can I throw a feast for you and the community? Can I prepare a banquet for you? And of course, that's what she does. She prepares course after course of the most exquisite food, the best food these people have ever tasted. It climaxes in this dish of baby quail. Just astounding, astonishing, best melt-in-your-mouth kind of food. I mean, it was so good that a visiting general says, I've only ever eaten food like this in the best restaurant in Paris, the Café Anglais. And as people start to experience grace, as the food fills their belly, they actually start to laugh together. They start to, to get a sense of joy as they experience generosity. They actually start to confess sins. People start laughing about the way they used to cheat each other. <laughs> and the whole film ends, or the evening ends, with um, everyone gathered hand in hand, singing songs of faith together as this meal transformed the community. And the two sisters go back into the kitchen to find Babette. And they just see her looking wistfully and saying, you know, I used to be a cook at the Café Anglais. 
And the sisters said, we will all remember this evening when you've gone back to Paris. And she says, well, I can't go back to Paris because I spent every penny on this meal for you. All 10,000 francs were spent on the feast. You see, we're coming to this table. <laughs> Christ didn't spend money. He spent his life. He spent it all for you so that we might eat and drink with him, enjoy, forgiven, and then go out eating and drinking on mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace, which calls us in and gives us a seat, gives us a drink um, that tastes so good because we don't deserve it. So we thank you for Christ who came and, and ate and drank with sinners to show us that we really are that love, that we are, really are brought in that f- close in fellowship and intimacy with the living God through the blood of the covenant. May we get a taste of heaven this morning as we eat and drink. And may we resolve more deeply to be faithful to you as you've been faithful to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.